page 885. In this Bible, I'm using it's 1855, page 1855. 2 Timothy 3. We'll read from verses 14 to verse 17. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Again, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. We're still considering Article 2 of the Belgic Confession and what it might teach for us. Let me read that for us here, Article 2, by what means God is made known to us, considering this morning the sufficiency of Scripture. Article 2 says this, by what means God is made known to us. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says. All which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, and here's what we're considering this morning, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. Consider this passage in 2 Timothy 3, focusing mainly on verses 16 and 17, as we consider the fact that scripture, holy scripture, is sufficient to accomplish the purposes of God in the world people of God. Imagine there is a family that's going on vacation. The father likes to plan out the stops so that he can fill up the gas tank the same time that, the pe- that his family eats and gets food, likes to make the most of those stops. So he knows he needs to stop every 300 miles. And so as they set out on their trip, he plans their first stop at 280 miles so as to give a little cushion, and he knows he has enough gas to get them there. But shortly after they begin the trip, the fuel gauge breaks. And this greatly distresses his children. And they say to him, Dad, we don't, we don't want our vacation to be ruined by some car troubles or getting an empty tank of gas on the highway. Why don't we just stop a little bit earlier? The father says, no, no, I trust and I know this vehicle and I know that the fuel that we have is sufficient. Lo and behold, they arrive at their planned destination, 280 miles away for their first stop, broken fuel gauge and all. And of course, in this moment, a wise father will look at his children and will teach them about how the sufficiency of the gasoline for their trip 
points them to the sufficiency of Scripture. And if he is a sufficiently frugal father, he will do it as he buys them $1.49, 10-piece chicken nuggets from Burger King. I still don't know how that has not taken the world by storm, that deal. The gasoline was sufficient to accomplish its intended purposes, so no fuel gauge was needed for the dad. It was enough to accomplish the purpose of getting to that 280-mile-away destination. What is God's intended purpose for the world? And as we consider what God's intended purpose is for the world, what is his intended purpose in giving us his holy and inspired and written word? Well, God ultimately created this world for what? For his own glory and to involve his creatures in the enjoyment and the worship of him. That's the ultimate purpose of God. And the call upon us as those who confess his name is to align our lives, to live our lives in a way that matches that purpose. Is our life matching up with the ultimate purpose of God? As we consider that, what is the ultimate purpose of God giving us his word? What's the ultimate purpose of his word? Well, God's word was given to teach us about God and his will for us. Those are two general things. As we think about the will of God for us, that can be broken down into two further categories and probably many more categories. But God's will for us comes down to basically two things. How we are to be saved from our sin, number one, and then also what becomes of those who truly believe the gospel and who uh, seek to live for God. How we are to be saved from our sin and what becomes of those who believe the gospel and worship God. When we speak of the sufficiency of scriptures, of the scriptures, that the scriptures are enough, what we are saying is that they are enough to accomplish these purposes of God, to teach us about God, to teach us about his will for us, to teach us about salvation, and what becomes of those who truly believe the gospel and who worship God. In short, you might say God is glorified, His people, his church are built up, and the scriptures are sufficient for that task. Thus, since God's word is sufficient, we ought to trust it, believe what it says, and practice what it commands. Let us turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we remember, uh, remember over the last couple of weeks, I've had those, those four words that begin with the letter C. Conviction about the word of God, confidence in the word of God, commitment to the word of God, curiosity about the word of God. We're considering these things because we need to have our minds shaped around these truths so that as we come to the word of God, we have the proper posture. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, focusing mainly on verses 16 and 17. Paul writes to Timothy at the end of his life, as we mentioned last week, so we know what, whatever he's saying, this is extremely important. He's not going to waste his or Timothy's time. Second Timothy is what we call a pastoral epistle. It has a lot of direct information and instruction about the ongoing ministry and life of the church, along with First Timothy and the book of Titus. That's important to keep in mind this morning as we think about the sufficiency of Scripture and what these pastoral epistles would have for us. As you study the pastoral epistles, one thing that you're finding is that Paul is making a distinction between uh, the age of the church when the apostles are still alive 
and we call that the, the age of the apostles or the apostolic age. And, and that is sort of a watershed moment where he's writing the pastoral epistles, coming to the end of his life, making way for what we call the post-apostolic age. And the pastoral epistles are sort of making way for a more regular ministry of the church, as Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus, about how the, the ministry is to go on and how God's people are to be built up. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. Verse 16 begins by, telling to, uh, by saying to us, all scripture, all scripture, and that word should jump out at us. Last week, we considered what does it mean that the scriptures are God-breathed? We said that that means they find their origin in God. The scriptures come from God. They are holy and they are divine. They, therefore, they are uh, our authority in faith and in life. Paul is not, uh, he's talking here about the Old Testament scriptures, but he's not uh, negating the possibility of a New Testament canon being written here. As he's talking about the, the Old Testament scriptures here, he doesn't say anything about scripture being absolutely complete and there can't be anything added to it. In fact, in the letters of Paul, we have all kinds of evidence that he regarded many of the things that he wrote to be on par with scripture, assuming that some of the letters which he wrote uh, would be included in the Bible. So he's not speaking here about uh, or saying only the Old Testament scriptures are that which are God-breathed. He's saying this, whatever the church receives as scripture, whatever the people of God receive as as scripture, it bears these characteristics of being God-breathed, of being profitable. Notice that I said there, whatever the church receives as scripture. Uh, It's not as if the church, the people of God, designate something as the word of God. They can merely receive it as being God-breathed and as being their authority. We read that Paul says all scripture, uh, it is God-breathed, yes, but that it is useful, useful. When Paul says that all scripture is useful, what does he mean? We hear the word useful, all kinds of ideas might come into our minds. When you're growing up in Sunday school, do you remember, perhaps some of you, perhaps some of you experienced this, you remember those felt boards where they would tell the story of the Bible with the felt board characters and kind of move them around the board and sort of illustrate things? You might say that something like that is useful in classrooms today, in school. If there's a large class, a lot of times teachers will need an assistant, a teacher's assistant in that class. That might be something that is useful. See, both of those illustrations, what are they? They help accomplish the task, but they are not themselves sufficient for the task. But that, of course, is not what Paul means when it comes to Scripture and what it does for the church. Scripture is not merely a tool in the toolbox, is it? No, it's more than that. Scripture is not merely one arrow in the quiver. Look at the context of what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy in chapter 3. Uh, to go to the word of God in order to avoid the false teaching of those who would creep into the church. There are going to be those who rise up and try to, to teach false doctrine. And so Paul wants to turn Timothy's eyes away from those man, men. Do not follow men such as those. And he says, rather, look in faith to the word of God. What is going to hold your faith, Timothy, in line? What is going to, what is it, what is going to hold your faith in check and the faith of others? The answer is the word of God. It is sufficient for that task. See, it is useful in that it is what will yield the intended results according to the purpose of God. 
And of course, the intended results of the word of God, according to God's purposes, are the right beliefs to believe that which the word of God teaches and also the proper outward actions of the saints, their lives, what they believe and how they live. This means that Timothy needs to trust in what God has said in his word. God has given all of his word as that which is useful and beneficial and sufficient. Even the genealogies and obscure prophecies, things we might not always understand, even if they're harder to understand, that does not mean that they are less beneficial, that they are less useful. All scripture is breathed out by God and it has this sufficient usefulness. There are four terms that he attaches to the usefulness of scripture. It is useful for teaching and for training in righteousness and for rebuking and correcting. So those are four terms. There's a bit of a poetic aspect here where uh, most people see the first and the last terms as connected and then the middle two terms as connected as well. So let's consider the first and the last terms together, teaching and training in righteousness. The scriptures are sufficient for teaching. What does he mean by that? The word for teaching is the word for doctrine. The word is sufficient for doctrine. That is, proper belief rooted in the word of God. This is vitally important to understand. If you look at the early church fathers, if you looked at our, at our reformed forebears, what is it that they were doing when they were settling matters of disputation about theology and doctrine, what it is that we believe, what it is we confess, how do we understand salvation? They were going to the word of God. The early church creeds, they're opening up the teaching of scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ, our reformed forefathers. What are they doing? The unanimous voice of the Reformation was that the Bible, the scriptures, that which is breathed out by God, that is our final authority in faith and in life. Scripture is what is sufficient to teach us what to believe about God and the gospel And his will for our lives. It's an unchanging foundation. See, if you're going to have a consistent, a a consistent teaching about God and his will, you need an unchanging foundation. And you're not going to find an unchanging foundation in the opinions of men. You're going to find it in the word of God. And that is why Paul reminds Timothy of the importance of the scriptures. The phrase training in righteousness is an expressive term. It carries the idea of of a mentor training a pupil in a trade or an activity or even a sport. A piano teacher or a private baseball coach that shows step by step how to properly pitch a baseball or swing a golf club or I probably need one of those or how to move the fingers correctly up and down the keyboard. Scripture is sufficient for this. Training in righteousness. Through the scriptures, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, holds our hand and teaches us how to live according to his word. The point is, the natural man does not know how to live according to what the scriptures teach. We need to be taught all of those things. We need to be shown how to live. As we consider the work of the gospel in the world, this is really a beautiful thing. Someone converts to Christianity and comes into the church later in life. There are so many things that, that, they need to, that they need to learn as if they were infants in the faith. First, they receive the milk of God's word. 
And later on, they can move on to solid food. And as the people of God, we need to understand this. And when we see people come into the church because they believe in Christ, they believe the gospel, we need to wrap our arms around them. And just as God does, we need to hold their hands and show them by our common example how it is that we glorify God in this world. It's training in righteousness as you would teach or train a young pupil. If you've ever coached Little League Baseball, you know you've seen this before. There are those on the team who are eager to learn and eager to be coached. And then there will, be, there will be those who hem and haw and try to think of any excuse to ignore the coach's instruction. They think that they can figure it out on, our, on their own. The 21st century church desperately needs to be reminded of this. That it's the word of God and God working through the word of God by the power of his spirit that trains us for righteousness. The middle two terms, rebuking and correcting, they encapsulate the way for, for us in which scripture rebukes false doctrine and false ways of living. Isn't it true that oftentimes we learn what is right by Scripture showing us what is wrong? People can often think that there's nothing wrong with what they're believing, with the kind of lifestyles they are adopting, and oftentimes the way that Scripture corrects that is by showing them what is wrong rather than positively stating what is right. Scripture is sufficient for all of those things, teaching, training in righteousness, rebuking, and correcting. We hear all of this, and it may sound a bit daunting, right? We sit down to read Scripture, and sometimes we say, I don't know if I understand what this is saying, and it's not even a genealogy, or an obscure prophecy, or a random chapter in the book of Leviticus, and we're still having trouble understanding what it says. And to that, we must say that foundationally, it's very important to understand this as we approach the Word of God. So this is a central exhortation for us this morning. It's very important to believe that the Bible is true, even before we fully understand what it says. It's something for us to think about. We must believe that the Bible is true even before we fully understand what every word on every page says. Our spiritual growth, our growth in Christ comes down to coming to know and understand what we have already believed. The medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury summed it up really beautifully with this prayer. He said, O Lord, I do not try to know your loftiness, for I do not compare it to my intelligence. In other words, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. However, I would like to understand to some degree your truth that my heart trusts and loves. That's what we all should say, right? We want to understand to some degree. And then he says this, Thus, I do not understand to believe, but believe to understand, because if I do not believe, I do not understand. What we are doing when we seek to know and understand God's word is we're getting more and more acquainted with, more and more understanding of all that we have already believed, all that we have already believed. So believer, do you believe every word of scripture, even if you don't understand what every word on every page says. Do you believe every word of it? And if you believe, then you will believe to understand. 
Paul points Timothy to this word, saying it's sufficient for these things. And he is, uh, Timothy is to lean upon the word so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, as he says in verse 17. Paul is speaking to Timothy here in the context of being a minister, being a pastor, being a shepherd in the church. He urges his pupil to cling to the scriptures because he has been called by God to proclaim it and to build the church through the proclamation of the word. Thus, when Paul speaks of the man of God in verse 17, this primarily refers to Timothy himself, the man of God, Timothy, the man called by God to proclaim the word and to teach the word and to do so in the midst of God's people. To, uh, by extension, we would add all those who are called by God, like Timothy, to shepherd the people of God by using God's word as that which is sufficient for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Cling to the word, Paul says, and you will be thoroughly equipped. That word for thoroughly equipped carries the idea of completeness, which adds weight to the claim of sufficiency. The Bible is enough. You will be thoroughly equipped if you cling to the scriptures, Paul says to Timothy. It's sufficient for his ministry. It's sufficient for Timothy to carry out his task of leading the people of God. The point is that if it is enough for Timothy and for his ministry, it is enough for the people that Timothy is leading and shepherding and pastoring. All those under his care, it is sufficient for them as well. If, as Timothy immerses himself in the trust and the study and the love of God's word, his own life will be caught up in that formation which can only happen by the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in and through the word. Timothy is then called to teach his people from a place not merely of head knowledge, but of true love and devotion to God. One of our great reformers said, when words, words that come up from the mouth of a man will reach the ears of the people, but words that come up from the heart of a man will reach the heart. Words that come up from the heart of a man will reach the heart. See, the one who proclaims and teaches the word of God must himself be immersed in the life of God's word, not just the knowledge of God's word, the life of God's word. And he must be exemplary in how the word has shaped and formed and corrected and trained him. That's why it's important to pray for those who minister God's word to the people of God because their life needs to be a primary example of how the word of God shapes and forms For God's people need to see firsthand how that happens and how God's word shapes and forms us as the Holy Spirit works in and through it. If the man of God is thoroughly equipped, God's people who are taught by him also will be. They will be thoroughly equipped just as Timothy is thoroughly equipped. So the one who teaches, who proclaims, who preaches, who shepherds, will be most effective if he has a heart that has been broken and remade by the word of God. Not just in on an, initial, an initial sense, but in an ongoing sense. Every day, his heart being broken and remade by God. Showing how sound doctrine and sound living 
can never be separated, right? Because contained within our sound doctrine is what? All those who are saved by God will be sanctified by him. All those who are saved by God will be shaped and formed to live in a way that shows they are zealous for good works, zealous for the glory of God. Thus, we come to the conclusion from this passage. The entirety of the Christian ministry finds its origin, its foundation, and ongoing life in that which is God-breathed. Its origin, its foundation, its ongoing life in that which is God-breathed. If a man had nothing but a thorough and vital understanding of the truths of Scripture, rooted in an identity in Christ and salvation, the church can be built. It is sufficient. Let us apply as we close in two different situations. Let us apply this idea of the sufficiency of scripture. Consider two different things. We'll consider the tradition of the church and we will consider ongoing prophecy. This passage is uh, helpful for us as we consider what it does not say. As Paul points Timothy to the God-breathed scriptures and saying it's on, a, it's on a different level of authority than anything else you will find, Paul eliminates other things that would be considered by some to be as important or as needed as scripture. One thing that we would mention first is tradition. Is the tradition of the church, what a church in Rome or anywhere else has declared, does that carry the same authority as scripture. If we were to say yes, what are we saying? If we say yes, we are saying that the scriptures which God has breathed out are not sufficient to accomplish those ultimate purposes, teaching about God, teaching us about his will. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul has a really helpful, uh, a really helpful account uh, written by Luke, of course, but a really helpful account where Paul applies, I believe, the sufficiency of scripture. Paul is bidding farewell to the church in Ephesus. He says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Sounds a lot like Second Timothy, doesn't it? Therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is how badly Paul desires their right confession and right belief. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That last part is Paul applying the sufficiency of scripture. The word of God's grace is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He does not say, cling to the scriptures and what Peter or his successor in Rome will say. He commits them to the word of God. He's worried about false teachers coming in, dragging them away from the faith, and he commits them to the word of God, which is able, it is sufficient to build them up. He also does not say, wait for another generation of prophets to arise and to give you further revelation from God. He does not say, wait for God to send you more prophets. Prophecy was a gift of the Spirit in the Old Testament, and it was also a gift of the Spirit during the age of the apostles, when 
the new covenant church was being established and the gospel was being proclaimed throughout the world. Mostly, we don't know who New Testament prophets were during the time of the apostles. There are a few mentioned in the, in the book of Acts, like, for instance, Agabus. We see him in Acts 11 and Acts 21. But what we see from Scripture is that uh, during the age of the apostles, the apostles are teaching God's word, they're establishing churches, and there are also these prophets who go throughout uh, the known world declaring something very specific. They're declaring the mystery of Christ. Now, what is the mystery of Christ? It's that the Jewish Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Savior of the world, and that simply by believing in him, you can be saved from all your sins, both Jews and Gentiles. Prophets in the New Testament, the book of Acts, they were sent throughout the known world to declare that message. But it was a particular gifting for the apostolic age, the age of the apostles. And that's important to remember as we consider books like First and Second Timothy and Titus, again, the pastoral epistles that give this regular picture of ministry that is rooted in the word of God. At the end of his life, Paul is speaking to Timothy. And what is he pointing him to? He's pointing him to the sufficiency of the scriptures. And he does the same to the Ephesian elders. Thus, remember that when you come across those who would claim for themselves the titles of apostle or the title of prophet, Paul tells us that the foundation of the church is built by the apostles and the prophets. Once that foundation is laid, the church is to look to the opening up of the scriptures, the administering of the sacraments, the exercising of church discipline, that the church might be one, gathered as one, under the authority of the God-breathed scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Just like an appeal to tradition as being on par with scripture, so it is with those who claim that they have received new revelation from God. God reveals his truth that his will might be known for us. And so when someone claims that, what they are saying is that God has purposed to give to his people more. And we know that that does not happen after uh, the age of the apostles has ended. A few scriptures for us to consider as we close. Proverbs chapter 30. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. In Revelation chapter 22, the apostle sums up the words of scripture, speaking about, of course, the book that he, is, that he has written, but I think in some ways all of the scriptures he says this, Revelation twenty two eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That which is God-breathed is absolutely authoritative. And one would tread carefully if he were to claim that he had something new uh, from God. So, what do we need if we are to live according to the sufficiency of the scriptures? We need individual effort to study God's word, to meditate on it, and to understand it. Psalm 119, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We need individual effort to study and meditate on the scriptures. We need mutual teaching, don't we, amongst ourselves, encouraging one another from the words of scripture, teaching one another about the truth of the scripture. And then finally, we need to hold the work of preaching, teaching, and proclamation as central to the life 
of all the believers in the church. Thus, as we go to God's word, we know why it is that he created this world and what it is that he commands of us. Let us believe that God's word is true even before we fully understand it. Let us rest in the fact that God's revelation is complete, that he has spoken in his word, he still speaks, and it is there that he still speaks to his church. Because God's word is true and sufficient, we ought to trust it, believe what it says, and practice what it commands. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled to be your people, and may we adopt this posture as being under your word and not over it, as knowing that it is there that we find your work, the work of your spirit, to shape and to form us. Let us trust it. Let us believe what it says, even before we fully understand every word. And Father, may you receive all the glory. How firm a foundation you have given to us, when through fiery trials our pathway shall lie. Father, we know that because of what you declare to us, those promises in your word, Father, that you have given us that firm foundation upon which we may stand and withstand all of the trials of this life and all of the wiles of the devil. Thank you for what you have said and declared. May we ever look to it and be shaped by it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's 